Hi everybody, welcome to episode one of Great Works, aka an endless search for the greatest work of art. I'm Tay. And I'm Jess. And this is a podcast about everything and anything. More specifically, it's a podcast where each episode we take it in turns to convince each other why our chosen topic is, without a doubt, the single greatest work of art. We can talk about anything, a film, a book, a game, a song, and yes, even actual art. By the end of the episode, we'll either all agree that your thing is a masterpiece, or it will be in the bin. Let's get started. So, the very first episode of Great Works, and I have chosen the topic of this first episode. Um... And the topic that I've chosen as one of the greatest works of art is a piece of music. It's a piece of classical music. I've chosen it because of all the various works of art out there, I am a big musical fan um, of all sorts of music, but I love classical music and I really love choral music. Um, choral music being obviously when you have a big choir singing, um, it's, it's so varied and it can be so beautiful. So the piece of the, the the work of art that I'm choosing for this first episode is a piece by a Russian composer called Sergei Rachmaninoff. You've probably heard of him. Um, and the piece itself is a choral movement that's part of a really large choral piece that is a religious piece of music. A lot of choral music is draws its inspiration from religion. This episode isn't going to really be about that so much. It's not going to be talking too much about the religious aspect. And hopefully this will show you that, you know, you, you can enjoy just the beauty of music for what it is rather than necessarily, um, you know, listening to it in a church setting. Um, but the piece is called Bogoroditsye Dievo, Forgive My Russian. That is in Russian. It means Hail Mary. Um, you know, we say Hail Marys. There's the Ave Maria. That's all the same thing. It's all about the mother of God. Um, that's the text. But to be honest, I'm just I'm listening to some Russian texts, so it doesn't mean that much to me. But what I want to talk about, about why this is the greatest work of art is I think it is profoundly beautiful as a piece of music. It is so emotional. It is so emotive. I think it gives you spine tingling chills in its beauty. And that is why I think it's a perfect piece of art for our first episode, because I think that it is an example of how art, how music can make you feel really deeply. Um, and this is my argument for the greatest work, work of art. I like that. You, yeah, you definitely pitched it to me. I think you were like, you have to listen to it with headphones and it's spine tingling. That were your two main arguments like for, for you know how, how we should be approaching this. Um, yeah, I mean, do you want do you want to like dive into it, or do you want me to give you my first impressions as someone coming into it with very very little musical knowledge around like classical music in general, or um, around kind of like choral music, anything Rachmaninoff? I mean, it's yeah, totally up to you. You're convincing us. <laughs> yeah, sure. I, I mean, I suppose to give a bit of background, um, I am a classical singer, and I've, you know, I've been trained classically and I've sung in lots and lots of choirs and I've performed this piece before and that was one of the reasons that I wanted to pick it because it means a lot to me um 
But I thought it was a piece that you, Tay, and listeners would be able to appreciate, even if you're not musical. And I will, uh, you know, throughout this episode, hopefully convince you of that. Um, I guess first things first, there are a number of recordings that I recommended you listen to, Tay, in advance. And if any listeners wanted to stop and listen, they could. Um, the recordings are either the ones by Tenebrae or by The Sixteen, or there is a really, really good recording on YouTube by a German choir, which I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of, which is MDR Rudfunkoro, uh, which is a choir. And we'll, we'll put a link in for anyone who didn't quite catch that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so those are those are like my three recommended um, versions to listen to. And yeah, absolutely, you've got to listen to it with headphones in because of this really amazing climax that uh, is one of the best parts of this of this piece of music. Um, but yeah, Tay, as a non musician, tell me what your first thoughts were about this piece. I think I may have slightly sold myself uh, short, and in in you know in the interest of not misleading anyone who is listening to this, I don't want to say I, I am a complete musical novice. Like I did, I did play the violin for a little bit of time, so I'm coming into it with a little bit more knowledge. But yeah, absolutely, me and you are on like kind of opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, I don't really listen to music like like this recreationally, so coming into it, you know, I I, I you were worried a little bit that it's going to be too specific and. I was telling you that from the audience perspective, like I wanna I wanna be tuning in and listening to something that's gonna be kind of a lot more niche and take me out of my comfort zone. And this definitely did. So, you know, when when you when I first loaded it up and saw that it was what one part of a a, a Russian Orthodox, I don't know what you call it, a Russian Orthodox composition, uh, made up of kind of Russian chants, I was a bit, you know, a bit puzzled, but I listened to it. I really, really enjoyed it, would be my initial kind of impression. I was surprised. Um, it was quite succinct. Like, I was expecting it to be a lot more, from the description you gave, I was expecting this, like, epic, I don't know, hour-long piece. And, of course, if you take the whole uh, the whole all-night vigil, then, you know, I don't know if it quite runs all night, but <laughs> I'm sure it runs quite long. Um, and I have since then gone back and listened to the rest of it, and we can talk about that in a second, but as kind of like a contained piece of art, I really, really enjoyed it. I'm not sure I've picked up on all the nuances yet, like that that first time you sent it to me, I think about two weeks ago now, I listened to it about six or seven times in a row. Um, and I definitely was picking up on like more and more like subtleties inside it. And obviously like the, the climax is pretty hard to miss and that's kind of, yeah, the the, the moment that I guess sticks with you and is probably most recognizable for people. Um, but but yeah, I have revisited it like almost on a daily basis since then, just to see how my impression of it changes over time. And I do have you know, some questions and things I want to ask you and we'll get to that. But overall impression, first impression, really actually quite approachable for the type of music it is. Um, I'm not sure if, I, if I'm quite a convert and I'm going to be listening to other choral pieces, you know, in my spare time, but maybe you can convince me otherwise. Yeah, no, that's fair. I think that's, I think that's positive and that gives me enough space to try and convince you why, you know, how great it is. <laughs> but yeah, you were sort of saying about how it was quite succinct and um, you were expecting something a little bit, maybe a little bit 
more complex, a little bit grander. Actually, I think the simplicity of it, it's very simple for Rachmaninoff and for what he does. But I think that kind of adds to the magic of it. It's very quiet at times. The dynamics, i.e. the volume that Rachmaninoff uses, is one of the most powerful things. And some of those really quiet opening parts are what leads it to be so reflective. Um, It's reflective and it's meditative in some ways because of that. Um, The melodies are simple. They're sort of, they kind of move up quite gradually in tones, usually in tones of three. And they create these really long arching legato lines. Legato just means it's very smooth and like very fluid. And it creates this kind of really sustained kind of movement that's very quiet and very reflective and very meditative. Um, And after that initial beginning part, it moves on to something where the basses which the basses are the lowest singers in the four part of a choir. I was going to ask you about that, actually. I hope you don't mind me interrupting. I was going to ask you, what is the makeup of of the choir who sings this? Like, how would you even describe it to someone like me who doesn't know the first thing about a choir? So that the recording um, that you sent to me, you know, you sent me a few examples of them. Um, I've seen anything from, I think it was eight people singing it to obviously um the one that we're looking at now the the from the octavism channel on youtube which is another good one uh it's a whole a whole ensemble is is a whole lot more than eight so do you just break it down like for for anyone who doesn't know yeah so um it's conceived of for four parts that's how most choirs are made up with the four main parts that's male and female singers um the top part those that sing the highest are sopranos. And then down from that, you have the altos. Um, you can have female and male altos. Um, and then the next one down there is a tenor. And that is like a high, high-ish male voice, but not as high as an alto. Um, and then finally, the bottom part is the bass part. And that is the lowest male voice. And within this piece, it, it starts in four, but then it splits. And the individual parts split into multiple parts. So I think at most there's only ever six different melodies going on at the same time. Um, but at various points, each of the parts split into two. So you'd have two sopranos sing- possibly singing different different notes. Um, that's pretty standard. The recordings that we that you mentioned, that some some of them were eight people, that's basically one or two people to a part which is not very regular in a choir. That's a very small, like tight group. And that means that they tend, the sound is very different. They tend to be very attuned to each other and their sound has to be very, very pure because they need to blend really well to each other because you stick out if you if your voice is too distinctive in that group. Whereas the other recording that you mentioned where there's a big choral ensemble, that where it creates a very different kind of sound. It's a lot richer and you can get this, especially if it's recorded in a church, you can kind of get this beautiful kind of clashing of all of the different voices that just 
sort of melts together in a really beautiful, rich, deep way. And um, I see pros and cons with both of them. I think the really quite beginning, early um, parts of this piece that I mentioned as reflective and meditative sounds really, really brilliant with those those small ensembles like Tenebrae and the Sixteen are the, the two quite famous choirs who, who, who sing in those smaller one or two people per part. But the really big choirs, I think that's how Rachmaninoff intended it because there is a richness to that to that those kind of um, makeup to to those kind of choirs. And what's really wonderful about those recordings is the crescendo in the middle, which is the climax that I mentioned earlier, just hits you so much more aggressively. And if you imagine yourself in this church that's made of stone and this powerful noise just hits you and then reverberates all around the stone and echoes it's just really um that's the spine tingling moment it's just really really emotive and it really shocks you and it's it's volume um but one thing to note is that i think that the recording equipment that we have can't capture that really and I think that that's why those smaller ensembles sound a bit better when you're listening to them, even in headphones, because really for those really large choirs, um, the sound is so intense and great and varied that you need to be in the room to really experience it, um, the way it sort of surrounds you. Speaking of which, shall we listen to the crescendo now? I'll fade it in. Yeah, absolutely. So... Yeah, let's listen to it now. And once we've we've heard that, I might just explain why, if you do get chills, I might just explain why that is. Perfect. And I'm really interested to know, you talked about the way Rachmaninoff intended it. So when we come back, I want to dig into that a little bit more and talk about maybe a, a little bit around the context of this. We can talk about that in a second, but also... You know, what, what would the choir who were singing this in 1915, what was the composition of them then? How would it have differed? Where would they be playing? Let's talk a little bit around that too. old i've listened to it so many times and it still gives me chills so jess why is that you're gonna you know tell us from a biological standpoint yeah yeah definitely so no i will i will get ready there is um there's something called frisson and it's literally that describes the kind of chills that you get down your spine the goosebumps that you feel um 
And it is quite complicated. And I believe you are a scientist, Tay, and I am not a scientist. So I'm not going to try and explain it in really detailed scientific sense. Um, But essentially, there are a couple of different things that cause frisson, but it's your body's physical response to music. And it, it's your nervous system that actually responds and also your reward system. So the same kind of system that can allow dopamine to get into your bloodstream in, as a result of, you know, sex or gambling or eating good food. So it's exactly the same kind of thing. Um, and that, that, that kind of like pleasure center of your brain becomes activated when you hear some music. And there are a couple of things that can cause this. Um, Sometimes it's the emotional context of the piece. So if it's you perceive the piece as um, sad or happy or romantic, that can cause it. Sometimes it's the environmental context of the piece. So, for example, if you're listening to a piece um, in a movie and there's some music in the background and the movie's really emotional, that can trigger it as well. But this in this instance, the third sort of theoretical thing that causes this is kind of violations of your expectation. So you're expecting the music to go a certain way and then suddenly it doesn't do that and it, it does something different. That might be a change of pace, tempo, a key change, something like that. In this instance, it's volume. This is the only um, forte, I that means loud, part of the piece every other part of this piece is quiet the beginning that second section just before the main crescendo and then the ending is all quiet this is the only bit that's loud and in particular it's made more extreme because that section just before it gets really loud the basses aren't singing so you have the tenors and sopranos in unison really sustained quiet notes and the altos are doing quite a quiet tune And then suddenly the basses come back in and the basses are singing loud and the sopranos are singing really high. Everyone is singing really loud and the parts split. So you have multiple harmonies. And that is such a shock to your senses that it can it can create that spine tingling feeling. And it's it's your body's actual response to, I'd like to say, good music. Um, I have read about this and, and it, is, it is always positive. The response is always positive, even if it's sad music you're listening to, even if it's a sad um, movie that, that is causing this feeling uh, with, with its sad soundtrack. The, the response is still positive. It doesn't make you sad, like something like grief makes you sad. The music is still a positive response, uh, according to uh, brain scans or something. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the science behind it. That is super interesting. While you were... There was two things I wanted to pick up on. Like while you were talking, I was desperately trying to think of like, okay, what is it that makes you know that happen for me? What gives me that reaction? Or what can I think of like notable examples? And I think I yeah, I could I could probably think of like songs in, in isolation. But then when you mentioned the movie, like the thing that immediately came to me, um have you seen La La Land? Oh, I haven't seen La La Land. Okay. Well, this is just gonna be a spoiler, so I'm gonna talk around it, I guess. So there's, you know, you, you know the premise of La La Land and you know, it's, 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 it's a romantic comedy drama. And eventually, like, it seems to be going in the direction of the two people are getting to know each other, they find each other. And then you have the kind of 
the, the the change of fortune in every kind of romantic comedy or drama where oh no they've suddenly fallen apart you know they're never going to get back together and again not trying to spoil it like la la land quite cleverly subverts the expectation that you then have from then on and the the culmination of that is this like particular piano piece which and and, the, and it's contextualized really well uh in that ryan gosling's character is you know he's a, he's a jazz pianist he plays at this jazz club and the final like climactic song and the climactic moment of um uh, of the film is 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 the two characters emma stone's character and ryan gosling's character in the jazz bar seeing again don't want to spoil it seeing a version of events that could happen with a really just really cool like jazz backing track and that is that is the first moment like this that came to mind which is a really interesting one and yeah the, the first one that i could think of um it definitely has those same what you said about it like changing pace or doing something unexpected definitely happens there too and it's and and in some ways it it is a very sad scene um it's not quite grief but it does have very sad undertones but the music kind of like you say counteracts that which is super super interesting um and then the other thing was you said that this is the only loud part of the piece and obviously like it is but i think it might be one of if not the only one of the very few actual forte parts of the whole all night vigil like correct me if i'm wrong but this morning i was um i was listening to the whole thing so there was again not very interesting there were some workmen outside making a lot of noise so i and i had some like documents that i needed to read um and, and, you know actually focus on so i, I listened to this with kind of noise cancelling headphones on and i just thought i need something super chill um uh, just just not gonna you know because i can't really listen to music um that demands a lot of attention when i'm also reading so i thought this will be you know very easy listening how loud is it going to get and the one moment i had to like actually turn it down and I, I couldn't hear myself thinking when i was reading the documents was when i hit this crescendo and i hadn't realized it because i will be honest like the the first five or so parts did all blend into one and i did and i couldn't really differentiate what i was listening to but when it came to this moment like yeah you definitely feel it it hits you no matter if you're doing a different task it does demand attention so i'm totally with you there yeah i i sort of wonder because this the all night vi- vigil as we mentioned earlier is a an orthodox sort of ch- a russian orthodox church service and it follows the kind of canonical hours that monks used to get up and sing vespers and then they used to sing matins um and that is what this this uh, all night vigil compresses it compresses vespers then matins then first hour i think are the uh, three sort of sections and i sort of wonder maybe um the loud bit is meant to wake you up because you're getting up at you know stupid o'clock in the mo- in the morning to to listen to some music for literally hours um so maybe it's meant to jolt you awake so you continue to pay attention that's probably not an accepted theory but i think that's quite a funny idea no that is yeah we've nailed it this is an alarm clock this is uh what like 19th century well how far do vespers go back i I guess we can if you're happy to we can dig a little bit into like the history around this i don't know how much research you did into that but I, i got a few things i want to talk about too yeah, I mean, my my knowledge of it is um, not hugely um, great. Obviously, the 
you know, these kind of religious services go back, you know, really, really far. Like the Russian, Russian Orthodox Church is, you know, it goes back really, really far. Um, the interesting part of this is that this was written just before the Russian Revolution and around the time of the Russian Revolution of 1917, um, and there was the rise of the Soviet, Soviet Union, there was a, you know, condemnation of religious music. So this then becomes n not acceptable, this kind of music, which is a shame because it's so beautiful. Um, but it's actually quite, um, it's quite a pivotal piece in like, I suppose, the history of Russia and the history of Russian music. It's sort of the end of an era. Um, so I think that's actually really quite interesting. Yeah, awesome. So that, that uh, I think we must have read the same article. Uh, <laughs> um, what I want to talk about. Rachmaninoff wrote this, the entire All Night Vigil, in two weeks, it said. They say it made its debut in 1915 to benefit the war effort, um, obviously kind of in the lead up to the events of 1917, at which point, like you said, this was banned. Um, and I was reading that, you know, even 50 years later, so the first performance was in 1915, then the first recording of it, um, I believe that was kind of published by a label and distributed. I think it did quite well across Europe and, and in the US. Like that wasn't until 50 years later. And even then, because of like the Communist Party's ban on religious music, um, it was only for export and for kind of private study, right? How much do you think that adds to the to the lore of the piece? You know, is it is it the idea of like this is uh, a, a part of Russian cultural identity. Uh, it makes a debut in a time of war at a time when kind of tensions are high. And then by the time it's had a few performances, like that's it. Uh, the, 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 cultural, the cultural revolution happens. Rachmaninoff leaves the country soon after with his family. Um, it is an end of an era, like you say. And then obviously the whole kind of religious underpinning of it makes it very inaccessible to the Russian people and kind of to other people more widely. How much of that does it play into it being considered a, a great piece of art or you know, Rachmaninoff's greatest work? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot to to unpick there, I guess. I mean, obviously when he was writing this, you can't imagine that he could predict that kind of outcome, that it would be banned, but I think a few years before the Russian Revolution, it's conceivable that he could be thinking that it might be an end of an era in some way. And this kind of, this sort of music is a real deviation from the other stuff that he's written. It's really quiet, really reflective, very simple, um, which is very different from some of the other things that he's done that's a lot more colourful. Um, so in, in some senses, you wonder if it's sort of reflective because of that kind of mourning the end of an era um, and sort of going back to those roots of an earlier Russia, it's really quite possible that it sort of has those kind of reflections. In terms of how it is seen nowadays, I think that the fact that it is the end of an era, in a sense, for Russian composers, obviously he was influenced by really big Russian composers like Tchaikovsky and, and people like that. And the fact that this in some senses does mark the end of that era, literally because it was banned, because it was religious. And, um, you know, like he continued to compose, 
but maybe in that sense it has been a bit romanticized and that is quite possibly why it's become a bit of a a cornerstone of um of choral music it's not the most famous piece but it's if you're a choral singer you will have sung it it's um it's it's a very popular one um here's a question how difficult is this to sing it looks like it looks like a sneaky one like it looks fairly simple like we've talked about um how maybe it's quite accessible and I, I, there is a point I want to come back to on that with, with with kind of how it fits into Russian culture at the time. But is that deceptively so? Like, is it actually a really challenging piece or kind of as someone who's sung it? What do you think? Um, I think that there are a few points that are worth noting as quite difficult. Um, it is simple. There are the sustained, quiet, high notes before the crescendo are very difficult to sing technically. Like it is difficult to sing high and quiet and sustained and get your breathing right. So you don't basically stop the note in its tracks. You have to balance your breathing with the people around you so that it's un- you can't hear the breath in- that breaks the line. Um, but I think the thing that's worth noting is the most challenging is the, f- is the basses and the basses line. So, People nowadays who who sing this piece, the basses of most choirs can't sing the low notes that were intended for this piece. Um, Russian basses have a reputation for being really low, really, really rich. And that kind of reputation hasn't really been matched by anybody else, um, by any other nation's singers. And... Rachmaninoff wrote it for these kind of people. There was an anecdote, a really great anecdote for another one of the pieces. Um, I'm not sure exactly how low it goes. I think that the recording we listened to, the lowest note in this um, movement goes down to an F1, which if you Google that, it doesn't sound like a human noise. It's really, really low. Um, But there's another piece, I think, that goes down even lower. And there's a brilliant quote, if you let me just briefly find this quote. So the really great quote was from Nikolai Danilin, who conducted the premiere of this piece. And the piece that he had just been shown by Rachmaninoff went so low and required three really low basses. Um, <laughs> I think that Rachmaninoff actually recalled that Danilin shook his head saying, now where on earth are we to find such basses? They are as rare as asparagus at Christmas. Nevertheless, he did find them. I knew the voices of my countrymen. That's a brilliant um, way of describing how Rachmaninoff and probably many Russian, Russians and Russian choral singers and composers thought of the voices of their countrymen um, as really rich basses. And these basses are actually called basso profundo. That's the technical name for these really very low basses. And um, that's another reason why I think this this song is fantastic. It's a proper piece of art because it requires such skill to pull it off properly. And clearly from the mind of someone who, you know, wasn't just thinking musically about this. Like we, we maybe we're, we're giving it too much credit as a cultural touchstone, as like and a mark of an end of an era. But I honestly, the more we talk about it, the more I'm convinced he knew that kind of the poignancy and the significance of it. Um, 
a point I alluded to earlier, and that now I feel like is 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 strengthened. Uh, by your point about Rachmaninoff knew his countrymen, he knew that there were these people who could reach these, you know, really ambitious notes. Um, so, like, he understood Russia, right? And I, I, I said it earlier. Um, from what you're describing, like the piece sounds really accessible, really easy to listen to, unlike some kind of classical pieces, whether it be from you know hundreds of years before this or even since. So, I think. Truly, like he he was when he was making this, like it's a it's a piece that's meant to be performed at huge public gatherings. It marks a significant point in the year. Like to me, I'm convinced that this was Rachmaninoff's almost like gift to his country, and the fallout from from everything after the war and, and the revolution. Like we see that in Rachmaninoff's output once once he's done with these pieces. Um, once he flees the country and moves abroad, like I, I don't know if you read this, but I found it super interesting. He actually moved to Beverly Hills for the final years of his life. Um, <laughs> so it wasn't Hollywood. One, you know, somewhere in 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 the West Coast of the U.S. And his musical output, if you look at it, dropped majorly. So he was putting out a lot of pieces, obviously, uh, while he was in Russia, while he was touring uh, the Scandinavian countries. Still, his output was good with his family. He first went to New York, um, where he was greeted as, as I read a quote, like as a bit of a rock star. So people were camping out outside his hotel. They'd heard that Rachmaninoff, the great Russian composer, was here, and it was something akin to Beatlemania for for the time. Um, he he performed uh, and and wrote pieces in New York for a while before moving to the West Coast, uh, where I think his output dropped even further, and and. By the end of his life, he was uh, a, a, he'd become a fully fledged U.S. citizen, which meant that unfortunately, at the time of his death, he couldn't be buried in his homeland of Russia, which is really really sad if you think about it. But the point I'm getting to, and where I'm going with all of this rambling, is that when it came time to his funeral, Rachmaninoff chose a piece from the All Night Visual. Unfortunately, it wasn't this one that we're talking about, but I think the point still stands. He chose number five. Uh, can't remember what it's called. Jess, you might know, but he credits the All Night Visual as maybe one of his uh, top two favorite compositions from himself, and I think it's really, really telling um, uh, his his kind of relationship with both his family, with his country, and with his work once he left Russia, and the final choice to include this, you know, this religious masterpiece. Uh, as as his final swan song, so I'm making the argument for you, Jess. Like this is a really important piece of work for Russia. See what I was going to conclude with. My argument is pinning around the emotional side of things, around the actual music itself, and how it makes you feel. The I'm using this as a major example for how music can make you feel a certain way and can feel haunting and spine tingling and that this represents the power of music. This piece is one of many pieces that could do that, but it does it in a certain way that I think is brilliant. But you've just given me an even stronger argument. So I love that you've come at it from a different perspective and convinced, I'd like to say, both yourself and myself. So that's that's my argument for this piece. And I hope I've convinced you. I mean, you've done a great job. I'm not ready to call it uh, the greatest work of art of all time. 
in the history of the known universe quite yet because this is episode one. But I think you, you know, if it wasn't obvious, you've convinced me and hopefully our listeners as well. Excellent. So at least that means it's not going in the bin. Maybe it's not number one yet. We'll have to see. We'll have to listen to further episodes of the podcast to see if anything else can beat it. But it's not in the bin. It's safe. It's on the list. Yeah. Um, maybe we'll have harsher critics on, on future episodes uh, for, for, you know, we, we haven't talked about it. Maybe it, it's worth taking a second just, just to talk about like what we envision this podcast being as we move forward and, you know, what, what the format's going to be. But before we do that, let's, shall we wrap up the topic? Are you, are you, have you kind of said anything else? Uh, you got anything else you want to say? I don't think so. I think that I am content. I think I have said everything that I wanted to say. Um, I think I've gambled enough, Tay. Do you have anything further you would like to say? Why, yes, I do. I'm glad you asked. I can't believe I nearly forgot this. This was the thing that I loved most about researching this piece. And, and I should add, you know, this was very, very light research. Yes, you're the expert here. I was just trying to keep up. But... Oh, this is, this is my favorite thing, and I'm just going to play it, and we'll come back, and we'll talk about it. Jess, do you want to hazard a guess at what that was? Well, obviously our listeners can't see the video, but the video involves women with like those kind of balaclava masks that people robbing bats wear, dancing lewdly in a rich looking Russian Orthodox church. So I'm going to say that it was this song being used as some kind of protest. Exactly. Yeah. So if anyone wants to go check this out, this is the song uh, or, the, or the piece being used by Pussy Riot, obviously the, the one of the most famous kind of anti-government um, Russian protest groups. Uh, a, a, some would, you know, you'd argue they're a punk band first and a protest group second. This was their first music video uh, that they put out. It's called Punk Prayer or in brackets, Mother of God get rid of Putin. It, it, it depends, you know, translations vary, but it's something to the effect of mother of God, get Putin out. Um, and yeah, like I said, it's like Jess said, it's a video of them running around a Russian Orthodox church to a somewhat bastardized version of this piece and just being chased around by, seems like the clergy from the church. And obviously the anti-Putin message is pretty strong. It's interesting that they would use a song which we've talked about being such a cultural, you know, milestone for the Russian people that was silenced at the time of communism. They're, I guess, resurrecting it and 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 putting their own spin on it. Um, I'm not sure it quite stacks up to the original, but it was super interesting when I when I first discovered it, and I just thought it really bears talking about in terms of the influence that the piece is having even today. Was it a popular piece? Did it make it into the charts? I don't think so. Definitely not the charts in Russia, but, you know, I mean, 
it, it made it onto um, the the citations page on Wikipedia as a footnote. So that's something oh, well, then at it least. Must be big. <laughs> uh, I think actually, following this, two of them went to prison, and the third one's case was, um, I think it was thrown out for whatever reason. But yeah, this this really kicked off the whole Pussy Riot saga, which. I believe has actually culminated in one of them now running against Putin for president. But yeah, let's not get too political with it. I just wanted to call it out because the, it just blew my mind that that Rachmaninoff made it into a punk song as well. You'd love to see it. It's pretty cool. <laughs> okay, that's that's that uh, that elevates it in my eyes for a greatest work of art. Let's leave it there. Jess, you've convinced me. It goes onto the list. We'll have to find out if it, how it stacks up against the competitors in the future. So now we'll move on to the final segment of this podcast, Art of the Week, which is where Tay and I both say one thing that we think has been a really wonderful piece of art that we have experienced in the last week. So suffice to say, this probably isn't going to be anything really major, but um, Tay, why don't you take it away and tell us your Art of the Week? Absolutely. And I'd just like to establish some ground rules. We're playing pretty fast and loose with definition of art for this ending segment. Don't expect it to be as focused as, uh, as as the main topics. For me, this week, uh, I've been watching Succession. Um, I'm a bit late to the party. So this is a, Succession is a HBO show which started in 2018. Um, it's got a couple of seasons and me and my girlfriend have been watching it in the run-up for season three, which comes out in October. And I have to say the hype definitely is real in this case. So... I've been hearing about the show for for the best part of three years now from different people about how you know it's it's, it's incredible. It's it's one of the best examples of kind of satirical or or black comedy um, on I guess prestige TV at the moment, and I would hundred percent agree with that. It, it really it really holds up. Uh, without getting too into the weeds, so Succession is about is a show about uh, a, a media conglomerate family. Um, it's loosely based on Rupert Murdoch and, and, and his shady dealings with his family. I won't go too deeply into it, but one episode that stood out for me uh, in season one that I want to very briefly touch on, because I think it's an incredible example of a tyrannical character. So probably the most convincing tyrannical character I've on screen I've ever seen. So Logan Roy, who is the, the, the I guess, the fictional world counterpart to Rupert Murdoch, is the head of this giant conglomerate. He's the CEO. And a plot point in, I believe, episode four is that he is being overthrown, as it were, by his own children in an attempt to take his media conglomerate away from him. Um, that's not really a spoiler. You kind of see that from episode one. But the writing is just 
absolutely incredible. The humor is so, so dark, but reflective of what I think people in these positions are saying. And it's perhaps the best reflection of, of, of like monarchy and, and tyranny and what that looks like more so than Game of Thrones, than any other uh, kind of other HBO dramas like Rome and the Tudors. Uh, if you love those shows, if you w- want to see fucked up people doing fucked up things and getting away with it, then Succession's your show. Give it a watch. Season three is coming out soon. Jess? I mean, I'm definitely going to give it a watch because I love HBO shows. So definitely, you've convinced me. Um, my my art of the week is <laughs> nowhere near as, um, I don't know, nowhere near as highbrow as, as that analysis. And it shows the breadth of different arts that we can count in this segment because my art of the week is a cocktail that I had at the weekend. What? Um, yep. My cocktail, which was so good that I thought it was a work of art, was a, an amaretto margarita. Break it down Hold for on me. to your socks. Break it down. So it's got most of the ingredients of a margarita. Um, so you've got triple sec and you've got tequila. And you've got lime juice, but you also have amaretto and cherries. And that's an amaretto <laughs> margarita. And it was so nice that I thought it should make it into this segment. And um, you should all go out and try it and drink it while you're watching Succession and while you're listening to Rachmaninoff. That's what we like. We like to combine our forms of art here. Uh, Jess, where might one find this amaretto margarita? Well... I drank it in a bar in Cambridge, but you can also find a recipe online somewhere. Um, link below, I promise. Link below, <laughs> link below. Okay, that's it. Thanks everyone for tuning in. Uh, next week's topic, probably two weekly. We're probably going to do these two weekly, Jess. Am I right? Yeah, I think I think we've committed to that. Okay, cool. So next week's episode, or next two weeks' episode is going to be my topic and the topic I've chosen or I should say nearly chosen is one of two Simpsons episodes so I feel like this is going to be one of many times that the Simpsons come up on this show you know Jess and I are big fans episode one that I'm considering Bart sells his soul episode two Lisa's substitute both really emotional really relevant you know up there in terms of Simpsons episodes I'll, I'll give them a rewatch. Jess, I'll get you to watch them too, and uh, we'll dig into it next time. I love that I have the excuse to watch two really good Simpsons episodes, because they're both really good. I'm really excited to hear what you have to say about them. That's the whole point of this podcast, just doing things we want to do and giving weird opinions on them. (laughs) Well, it's been a good first episode, Tay, and hopefully we will see some listeners again for the next episode. All right. Thanks, everybody. No, you're not rambling at all. I feel like I'm rambling and I think we're doing a good job. Okay, good. (laughs) Let's cut this bit and put this at the beginning. I think we're doing a good job.